Stranger Things. We're going to start um, talking about something over the next couple of weeks. I just want to say again, welcome to you, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online, too. We're really, really glad that you're here. Now, um, in our, our high school ministry um, spectrum of all the things that we do for high schoolers, we have an experience every Sunday night. It's called The Summit. Um, I think it starts at 4.30. High schoolers, is that right? I think it starts at 4.30, uh, 4.30 to 6. If you're a high schooler or if you have high school and they're not involved, they really should be. Um, the Summit experience happens on the third floor of our Cornerstone building in an environment in a space called... The summit, clever, isn't it? Um, It's the top of the building, so it's called the summit. That's where the summit happens. And uh, you can kind of see some of the space here and what it looks like on a Sunday night. Again, a really great place to be on a Sunday night if you're a high school student. Well, way back here in the corner, I don't know if you can see it, but in this environment, our student ministry staff built a rock wall. Take a look. Uh, It's out of plywood, but you see all these little tiny holes there. Maybe you can see them better up on the the big screen. Um, They built a rock wall because... Why wouldn't you have a rock wall in a place called the summit? It's too metaphorically perfect, isn't it? If not, go home and think about the metaphor, um, and, and maybe it'll become clear to you. But the other reason we, they built a rock wall is because John and Pua, our student ministry directors, they both really love rock climbing. Pua introduced John to it when he uh, first got here, and he's really taken to it, and uh, they're both really, really good. And I had an occasion to go rock climbing with uh, John at the rock gym and a few other guys a, a bunch of weeks ago, and I got to see that this guy is really, really good. So I asked him, I'm like, John, do you have any video? And he didn't have any video at the rock gym, but, uh, but he just showed us what he can do on, on this uh, thing here. Take a look. Little tiny holds. Looks like Spider-Man, doesn't he? Swinging around like that. That guy didn't look that flexible. And it looks like he's doing it in some slippers, too. I don't know what he's wearing. He's wearing some Toms. Oh. Making light work of that, isn't he? Pretty impressive. Now, um, I've, I've been rock climbing with, uh, with those guys, like I said, and I realize that I'm a pretty good rock climber if the holds look like this. These are like three-year-old uh, playground holds, I think. Um, but you know, if, if it's a big hold where I can really get my hand on it, I've got enough uh, you know, strength to be able to pull myself up on it, and I can, I can look like I know what I'm doing. Problem if you go to the rock gym is most holds don't look like this. If you've been to the rock gym, you realize that there are a lot of holds that look like this. I mean, this, this is a literal hold. Um, it, you get your fingers in it right here. You can think you can get about three fingers, maybe, maybe two in this thing. And you are supposed to be able to hold your whole weight on, um, on this with finger strength. The moral of the story, any fool can look good on a rock wall if the holds look like this. Um, to be a real climber, you need to learn how to grab on the holds like this. Now, I just want you to kind of to keep this with you, this image with you as we go through. This will be important later. Or I could say, hold on to it for later. Because um, today we're going to begin two weeks spent on the subject matter of evil. And I know that when we talk about a personal evil, a personified evil, a, uh, a, an evil presence, when we talk about the devil, um, that, that may seem a little strange in our day and age. It may seem far-fetched. It may seem, seem superstitious. It may seem kind of like small-minded. It may even seem dangerous. I mean, isn't that what, you know, people got obsessed with the devil and then you get things like Salem witch trials where you're now burning people at the stake for witchcraft and being under the control of the devil. I mean, it, it leads to hysteria in our history as a nation. It hasn't always taken us to good places when you talk a lot about a devil. And yet I think we all know, even if we don't agree with it intellectually, I think we all know in our guts that there is such a thing as evil. 
I mean, when you watch a news story about a father out in Colorado who uh, murders his pregnant wife and his two young daughters, you you hear that, and it not only makes me feel outraged that someone would do that to their family, but it also makes me shiver a little bit. There's something just not just bad about that, there's something dark about that, or the unfolding, uh, continuously unfolding priest abuse scandal, and especially that it's been playing out in Pennsylvania, and you hear the the kind of premeditated, systemic um, past that people took to to abuse and exploit kids, and there's something that's just sinister about that. Whereas you, as you learn your history and you learn about the, the just demonic imaginations of a leader like Hitler or the modern day warlords or tyrants that still exist in the world, whether that's in North Africa or in the Middle East or even on the streets of LA, some of these things that, that you encounter in life, there's no other name for it other than evil. And yet, as a culture, we're becoming less and less comfortable with using words like evil. Uh, professor of Humanities and American Studies at Columbia University, Andrew Del Banco is his name. He, he by all accounts and that I, I can figure out, is an atheist. And yet he's written extensively about the fact that, that our loss of vocabulary for evil in our culture is leaving us unequipped to face evil and especially to fight evil. It reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies ever. Um, the movie is The Usual Suspects. Anyone seen it? Verbal Kent, the character Verbal Kent in the movie, um, said this thing. And the first time he said it, just gripped me. He said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world. Do you know it? Convincing the world he doesn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And if that's true, if that's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, he's pulled it on Christians. Two-thirds, research says that up to two-thirds of Christians don't, aren't sure they believe in a, a personalized, personified evil. They, they don't believe in a devil. And yet here we are in a church, educated, talking about evil, talking about a devil, talking about personified evil. It's kind of strange, isn't it? And yet if we're going to talk about evil, it gets stranger than that. It gets stranger than psychopaths who do bad things or dictators who do horrific things. If we're going to talk about evil, it gets pretty strange. I went to Concordia Seminary. It's here in St. Louis, um, in Clayton, for those of you who are local. And, um, and while I was at seminary, some guys discovered in the library of all places, I don't know what people do in libraries, uh, grad students, it's weird to me. I don't know what they were doing in the library, but... Um, uh, they, they, they found a case study in the library. Seriously, I was in the library five times during my whole seminary career, I think. Um, that's the point. Uh, but I, they, they discovered a case study on the shelves in the library, and it was a case study written by a PhD student years before, and it purported to be the real-life story of what actually happened behind the, the, the story that was later made into the movie of The Exorcist. And according to this case study, it wasn't the subject of, if you've seen The Exorcist, creepy movie, especially even the old one with the bad, the bad effects, still scary. Um, but this case study said that it wasn't actually a young woman, it was a young man, a young teenage uh, man. Um, and he was brought to St. Louis because St. Louis University had been doing some paranormal studies and the family knew that he needed help, there was something going on. But he was a member of a Lutheran congregation, so he uh, first stopped by the seminary with his family, and the seminary president at the time and a few professors attempted in this, uh, if you've seen this, this picture here on the center screen, um, in that tower, on the base of that tower, there's a small prayer chapel. 
it is one of the scariest rooms I've ever been in in my life. And they chose this room, I guess, because it felt like a place where you might try to do an exorcism. I don't know. But they tried to do an exorcism on this young man, and it didn't work. And he went on a slew and was treated there and and ended up having a a full life. And then they they went on and they made a movie kind of based on a story. The movie is The Exorcist. And I I remember reading through this case study and and, and hearing about how some of this unfolded at the school that I went to. And I was just blown away thinking, wait, could any of that stuff in the movie, again, it's dramatized for Hollywood, but can any of that stuff in the movie actually be real? But deep down, I, I kind of know that it has to be, at least on some level, because I've had moments in life where I've encountered a situation or a person who didn't just feel dangerous to me or didn't just feel uh, bad to me, but, but I've encountered situations where I could feel the presence of evil. And it's not often, but I've encountered those situations and I've encountered people like that. And I wonder if you have too, where where I could just feel and I knew in my gut that there was something dark, not of flesh and blood that I was encountering. Today, we're going to look at an account where Jesus has a similar encounter, where he encounters evil, literal evil, the, the devil. And for those of you who are still trying to figure out if, if, if you're, if you buy into this whole Jesus thing, if you buy into his claims, I realize that talking about a devil today may push you. But I just want to remind you that sometimes being pushed is a good thing. Because if the greatest lie the devil ever told was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, then I think the best thing we can do for our sakes, for, for ourselves, for our world, is to expose him. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew chapter 4, this account of Jesus where he has an interaction with the devil. Um, if you're here in the room, page 967 in the Bible's ahead of you, uh, but the, the, uh, the words will be on the screen. Give you a little bit of context before we jump in here. Right before this, Jesus has been baptized, not to wash away his sin, but it says to fulfill all righteousness. And he is now ready after 30 years of preparing for his destiny, preparing for his ministry. He is ready to launch into his public ministry. And yet he's diverted. Let's look. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness, into the wilderness region outside of the, the kind of formal nation of Israel, where no man's land, where no one lived. He was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I had always imagined here when I read this that Jesus went out into the wilderness knowing what he was going to face, that he went out intentionally knowing he was about to do battle against evil. You know, like he's, he's ready. Um, but, but Doug Moss pointed out this week that, you know, maybe that's not the case, that it says here that Jesus was led by the Spirit and the Spirit knew what was waiting out in the wilderness, but maybe Jesus didn't know. He was just following the Spirit. And you know, as a, as a God follower, that makes a lot of sense to me because there have been numerous occasions in my life where I have just been following what I feel like is God's prompting or leading. I've been following the Spirit and I find myself uh, in places doing things and I'm not really sure why I'm there yet when I go there. I'm just there because I'm pretty sure that's where God wants me. Ten years ago, I started a journey that led me to St. Louis, and I didn't understand why. I didn't, didn't make sense to me at all. It didn't make sense to me, and yet and it, here I am all these years later, and now it makes a little more sense what God was doing 10 years ago, but at the time, I just felt like God prompting me and moving me and leading me to keep checking out what he was doing here in St. Louis, and, and a lot of people um, have had similar experiences, maybe not quite so crazy, and, and my story is pretty crazy, and someday I'll tell you when 
when we've got a little more relationship between us for you to be able to handle all that. Um, because God did some crazy things to get me here. But, but there are also moments where God nudges us or leads us and it's not quite so crazy. A lot of us have stories of all of a sudden feeling prompted to call someone or to text someone that we haven't talked to in a while. And, and we don't know why. We just feel like we need to reach out. And when we reach out, we discover that, that they're going through a hard time and, and we've reached out at just the right time. Right? Have you experienced that? Those are moments when the Spirit's leading us someplace or to do something, and yet we don't fully understand why. We just know that we're being led. And so I kind of like the idea, I don't know for sure, but I kind of like the idea that Jesus is ready to go out and do his ministry, and yet he feels the Spirit drawing him out into the wilderness, and he doesn't understand why. He only knows that's where he's supposed to be. And while he's there in the wilderness, he does what many of the greats before him do when they are in the wilderness. It says next, after fasting, he he fasts there. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came. Later on, we'll see that this is the devil. Uh, He'll be revealed. But here we just know him as the tempter. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now again, um, maybe the devil stood before him with a pitchfork in hand and you know, horns on his head and said, hey, look at these stones, you could turn them into bread. But, but, but maybe it was a different kind of experience. I like to imagine Jesus experiencing this a little bit differently, that, that he's been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, eating very little or maybe eating nothing. And he's hungry. I don't know about you, I get hungry after about like six hours of not eating. I'm starving, you know. But Jesus, he's been eating little or nothing for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he's hungry. And suddenly this thought comes into his head while he's there, hungry. You know, if you're the son of God, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? And it comes into his mind almost like a whisper, but once it comes in, he cannot let it go. He becomes preoccupied with this idea. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. After all, Jesus thinks, am I not the son of God? Then, and if so, then what am I doing out here in the wilderness? Deprived, hungry. Why wouldn't I just turn these stones into bread and feed myself? What, what kind of place is this? And what kind of position is this for the son of God? And with no time, that that thought has taken root inside of him, and it becomes so compelling. And then he remembers. He remembers what he has been taught from the time he's young. He remembers the scriptures and what they say. And so he answers to himself, maybe, to the air. Maybe he realizes there's a presence there at this point. Maybe that's still hidden. He answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus understands that true sustenance comes not just from food, but there's a richer sustenance that comes from dependence on God, that, that God's word feeds us and it strengthens us. And, and I don't know if his hunger goes away, but he's got his focus back. But he's not out of the woods yet. It says, then the devil took him. This is interesting. Remember who led him into the wilderness? You're saying it, the spirit, the spirit led him into the wilderness. So the spirit led him into the wilderness. Now the devil took him. So the spirit led him. Now the devil seized him, took him to the holy city. This is kind of interesting. I don't know fully how this might've worked. Um, took him into the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. I mean, I think about our roof up here sometimes on this building and I think, wow, 
Uh, that must have been a pretty scary place. Uh, highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is so interesting to me. When the first temptation came, turn these stones into bread, how did Jesus answer? What did he use to, to respond? He used scripture, right? So he used scripture, and man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second temptation, how does the devil come at him? The devil comes at him with the very thing that Jesus used to defend himself the first time. The devil comes at him with scripture. And he says, hey, why don't you throw yourself down? Because the scriptures say, and this is scriptural, from the Psalms, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He comes at him with scripture. Out of context scripture. <laughs> scripture that's been twisted, but he, but he comes at him with scripture. And, and we're not sure what this temptation is about. Is this, is this a temptation, you know, to test God's loyalty? And we all do this in relationships, Right? Jesus is out there fasting. Again, he's wondering, is, is, does, does my father love me? Does he care about me? How much? And, and so he's getting this nudge to say, hey, you know, why, why don't you see? Is he really going to come through for you? Is, is God really in your corner? Does your father really love you? Will he really take care of you like he promised to do? And again, in our relationships, we do that all the time, don't we? We put tests out there for the people who claim to love us to see how much they love us or how far they're willing to go for us. Or maybe this is a, a, a shortcut kind of temptation. You know, Jesus has a long path to walk to be revealed as the son of God. And yet if he throws himself off the temple and angels catch him, well, <laughs> the cat will be out of the bag pretty quick and it'll be pretty amazing. And we're not really sure what it is, but look how Jesus responds. He responds again with scripture, but look what he says. He answered him, yeah, but it's also written, do not put, your Lord, uh, put the Lord your God to the test. So he takes scripture and he answers with scripture. He lets scripture interpret scripture. That's an important principle in our lives that, that the evil one can take even the truth of God and twist it. He did it back in the garden. He does it all the time. And, and our best defense is not just to know a scripture verse, but to know the fuller counsel of God's word so that when a word of God is being twisted, we, we, have, a, we have a bigger network, a bigger framework to deal with. And that's what Jesus does. And so twice thwarted, the, uh, the devil now um, gets a little more aggressive. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, now Jesus knew that he had come into the world to be a king and to inaugurate a kingdom, but he also knew that that was going to be hard won, that it was going to mean suffering and death and rejection. He knew it was going to be a long, painful, heartbreaking journey for him to get to the place where his kingdom would be inaugurated, where he'd be seen as the king sent from heaven. And here in this temptation, the, the devil says to him, hey, you want to be a king? You want to have a kingdom? Forget all of that suffering stuff. If you just bow down and worship me instead of trusting your father, what, what good is that going to get you? That's going to get you killed. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you a kingdom. I'll make you a king. See, if he was subtle before, if he was hidden before, um, he's standing out in the open now, the devil. 
He's inviting Jesus to, to turn away from his father, to turn to him, to find a shortcut to his destiny. And, and Jesus, seeing him clearly, says, away from me, Satan. That word means adversary or enemy. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And with that, the devil was vanquished. He left him and the angels came and attended him. We're going to talk about angels in a couple of weeks. But what do we, weeks, but what do we, what do we make of this? these temptations. What's the point of including this very odd, strange moment in Jesus's life in ministry? Now, some have, have, have reasoned that these temptations, these three temptations of Jesus are kind of the big three temptations that we all face. And so uh, if you can just get to the bottom of what these temptations are, we're looking at the three greatest temptations that afflict every woman and every man who has ever lived. And that could be true, but I'll tell you for me, I have not yet found the filter that makes these temptations feel universal for me that, that apply completely to my life. Um, again, maybe I just haven't found it yet. Instead, I see these temptations as contextual. Not as the greatest temptations ever, ever to face anyone, but, but I see these, these uh, temptations as very contextual, very specific to where Jesus was. These are the three greatest temptations for a new leader the Messiah just beginning his mission, knowing that he has a long and painful journey ahead of him. And also knowing fully that he is the son of God, knowing who he is, but also knowing that there will be very few people who ever believe that he is who he actually is. See, I think through this, we don't, I don't see the three big temptations that afflict all of us. Instead, I I see more of the mechanics of how evil tends to work on us in a very personalized, contextual way. And that's what I want to talk about with you uh, this week in in, uh, this part of the the topic on evil. Uh, First, what I see is that evil prefers to work through people. Now, it's true. let, Let me just say this. It's true that we can have those weeks or those days where, you know, for some reason your alarm doesn't go off in the morning and you have a very important meeting and then your car doesn't start and then you spill coffee on yourself and you're looking around like, what is going on? No one can have this bad of luck. Like maybe there's something else at play here. You ever had a day like that? And you start to wonder, is, is there something going on in the spiritual realms? And that could be, and we're actually going to talk more about that next week. Um, and I'll tell you, that has been my week this week. It has been almost exactly like that. Has anyone noticed that the, that the devil, if, if, uh, if, if I can make this assumption, that the devil loves to work especially through technology? <laughs> um, so I've got this new computer. I had the same computer for years. It worked fine, but then it, it finally just died. You know, it was like worked, 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 and then it died. And I got this brand new computer, and this computer's been nothing but trouble. And then this week alone, it's crashed three times. Friday morning, I'm trying to finish up my, my message. And Friday morning is a high-pressure time for me because I'm trying to finish up my message, and that's high-pressure enough. But I also have like 10 people who are waiting on me to finish my message, um, all the production team who are just kind of like waiting to finish their job so they can go home and have you know, Friday night. And, and so they're waiting on me and, and my computer crashes and IT's working on it and I can't, I'm working on paper. And, and then I bite the end of my tongue for some reason. I'm just like, you know, writing on it. I'm just biting my tongue. I almost bite it off and it hurts so bad. I'm just going, what is going on here? And, and then, uh, and then this weekend as, uh, especially at this part in the service, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. It'll happen. Um, our, we have a video switcher that kind of, you know, puts what goes where on all the, all the screens and on the TV and, um, it's starting to die. This weekend, it's been dying. It's not scheduled to be replaced yet, of course. 
You know, it's not the stuff that's supposed to die that dies. It's the stuff that's not supposed to die that starts dying. And, and so um, even last night and today, you know, screens start doing weird things. And, and, and you look around sometimes and you're like, what is, what is going on? My wife, Jocelyn, was like, oh, well, you're talking about evil this week. Of course it's been this kind of week. Why didn't you tell me you were talking about evil? I would have been more prepared. And that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, but here's what I also know. That evil prefers not to work as a disembodied force in the world, but evil really prefers to work through people. See, evil knows that if, if it can get access into us, that it has now gained a foothold, a handhold into the rest of the world. See, I, I think with, with kind of some of the weird stuff that happens and broken technology, there is some chaos that can come into the world, but there is no chaos, there is no pain, there is no destruction that comes into the world like the destruction and the pain and the chaos that can come into the world through human being. And so when we are under temptation, when we are under attack or assault from the evil one, it's not just a matter of, am I going to give into this temptation? It's not just a matter of, you know, my own personal sin record with God and how, how, you know, pure or spotless I am before God. There's something bigger at stake. What the devil is looking for, what evil is looking for is the evil one is looking for a foothold or a handhold And we are his footholds and handholds to get into the world to create havoc and destruction and pain in families and households, in in businesses, in our relationships. We are evil's handhold and foothold into the world. And again, you just have to turn on the news to see that, right? Again, the movie The Exorcist, that's scary. Poltergeist, that was a scary movie when I saw it when I was a kid. But far scarier is what people are capable of doing in this world. And you see this with Jesus, that what is at stake in this temptation is not just Jesus' relationship with his father. It's not just his personal sinlessness. If Jesus falls for any of these things, then then think about the, the foothold, the entry point the devil has now gotten through Jesus to bring to bring pain and destruction into the world. Think about what is at stake if Jesus bows his knee to evil. And so I think it's important for us today to realize that when we're talking about evil, yeah, there is an evil that is working kind of disembodied in the world, but what it is longing for is to get a hold of people like us because we are its chosen conduit to bring pain and destruction and havoc into the world. Second, uh, we learn that evil twists our desires. So evil often starts with desires in us that are, are, are fine. They're, they're good things. Being hungry, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a mechanism God gave us so we'd remember to eat. Now, I don't know who would need to remember to eat. It tastes so good, but you know what I mean, right? It's, it's, it's a little warning thing for us, and, and yet that desire can be twisted. What about the desire to be loved? It's a desire that is God-given, and yet how many of us have had that desire to be loved twisted so that we have, we have done things against ourselves or other people in an attempt to feel loved? Or what about the desire to be safe, to be secure, to be comfortable? Again, nothing wrong with that. That's what, that's what God desires for us. And yet, that can get twisted, can it? And so our whole preoccupation in life can be our personal safety and our personal comfort. And so we're not willing to follow God when he calls us into the wilderness or he calls us to lay down our life or he calls us to love another person when it's risky. We just don't want to do it because we've, that, that, that desire has become twisted in us. 
It's so confusing. And, uh, and for me, you know, I, I take my personal growth seriously, and some of you have heard me talk recently. I've discovered a, an ancient spiritual perspective. It's called the Enneagram. And it's kind of a personality thing, but it's been used by Christians for centuries. And it looks at kind of nine different personalities. And, and what it looks at is it looks at these personalities through a core longing or a desire that we each have. And then it looks at how that desire can so easily become twisted into the source of, of our biggest pain, um, into the source of something that, that becomes the biggest uh, conduit of pain that we bring into the world around us. And so starting with Jesus' desire to, to just eat, his hunger, starting with Jesus' desire to be a king, to inaugurate a kingdom, the evil one begins to work on those desires, trying so hard to twist those desires. Today I want to ask you, because I think you already know, but I just want you to identify, what are those desires in you that the evil one loves to go to and, and he, he historically or even now has loved to try to twist in you to, to, gain a, to gain a hold in you. What are they? Is it a desire for security, comfort? Is it a desire to be loved? Is it some other appetite in you that again is, is good, it's God-placed, and yet it's gotten all wrong in your life? Third, evil exploits our vulnerabilities. If it can't succeed in twisting our desires, man, evil looks for our vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Now with Jesus, um, he's kind of different because Jesus didn't have the same vulnerabilities, I guess, that we do. He didn't have character flaws. And yet we see here that Jesus had quite a few circumstantial weaknesses. Again, he was hungry, he was alone, maybe he was a little overwhelmed by the work that was ahead of him. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that your, your grandma or your mom or whoever it was told you that nothing good happens after midnight. Anyone ever hear that from someone? You're like, be home at midnight unless you had strict parents and it was 10 p.m. They just moved it up. And they're like, nothing good happens after midnight. Nothing good happens. Right? Why? Because, because you're tired and other people are tired and you're just more vulnerable. It's not that they don't trust you. It's just that they know that you're more vulnerable. You're, you're weaker. More crazy things can happen when it's late. And so it's, it's interesting as the evil one comes after 40 days, I mean, Jesus is worn down. He's weak. Again, not character-wise, but, but as a result of his circumstances. And he comes and, and he tries to get a foothold in those weaknesses. For us, it may be that. It may be uh, during a long season where we've been killing it at work or, or we're just tired. We've not been getting enough sleep. Some of you have got young children and you haven't gotten a good night's sleep in years or maybe some of you have teenagers and you haven't gotten a good night's sleep in years because you're waiting up for them to get home. And, 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 and so, you know, those are the circumstances sometimes that the evil one will look for to try to gain access into our life. But then there are all these other weaknesses or vulnerabilities that are very personal to us. See, we all have our own character weaknesses. Some of us get angry too easily. And some of us, we, uh, we get, we're too clingy in relationships. We're insecure and so we want to hold on to people. Others of us, we don't know when to quit. We don't know when to say when. See, we all have our own brand of weakness or vulnerability. 
And in our world today, there's a lot of debate about, well, well when, when we do something evil, is it really our fault? How much personal responsibility we have in all of that? Or how much of it is, is a result of these inborn weaknesses, our genetics, the way we were raised? And, and, and God's answer is, yes, all of that's in play. And yet it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Whatever your weaknesses are, whatever your vulnerabilities are, whether those are a result of bad decisions, whether those are a result of bad genetics or bad upbringing, I don't know. They are all another way that evil looks to get a foothold into our life. See, if if you're actually climbing a rock face and and you find a hold like this, this is pretty good. But you know what's even better than finding something like this when you're climbing an actual rock face? It's to find something like this. (laughs) You can get your whole foot in there and you can like stand there for a week if you want. But here's the thing about this. This probably started off as just a tiny toehold. And isn't that how it is with our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities? They start off as just something small, but over time, the evil one just knows and he just wears those things out and he erodes and, and, and we may say yes to it a few times and it gets bigger and bigger and rain comes in and other things in life come in and it washes it away. And pretty soon what started as a tiny little toehold, a small indention, is this place where man... That's a foothold. And today I want to ask you, what are those footholds, those weaknesses, those vulnerabilities that the evil one loves to go to in your life? I know what mine are. I know those places in my soul that have been just worn down and eroded and They just make such a beautiful perch for the evil one to come in and to not only work havoc in me, but to bring havoc through me into the world around me. What are those things for you? See, I think when evil's working in the world, it it doesn't work in a generalized way. It's it's tailor-made, it's custom, it's specific to each and every one of us. But what I also want you to see, and we're going to talk more about this next week, we're going to, we're going to unpack this further, but what I want you to see today is something I think is really important. I think it's part of the reason that we get Matthew chapter 4, not just to learn about how evil works, but, but here's the promise for you. As you begin to do battle and recognize, because remember the first thing is just to expose evil, just to understand what's at work in you and, and to begin to expose the evil that is at work in you. Here's the promise for you today just as we begin to, to, to dive into this. That the one we saw in Matthew chapter four, the one who stood so well when evil assaulted him from multiple directions in his weakness, in his desire, in being misunderstood, the one who stood so well through temptation, he stands with you when you're tempted, when evil's coming at you. See, see one of the things that we can believe is that when uh, we're really tempted, when, when, when evil has us up against the ropes, or when we've done something that's really, really awful. It's easy for us to believe at that moment that we are unlovable, that we are all alone, that we are on our own, and that is not true. The promise for you today is that when evil's working on you or when evil has a hold in you, you are not alone. I want you to see what Hebrews 2 says. It says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus had to become like us in every way so that he would be merciful to us. I want you to hear that because when evil's got its claws in you, 
God is not far away and distant. He is not hands off. Jesus is merciful to you. He understands what it's like to be in the grips of evil. But not only that, it says also that he might make atonement for the sins of people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You are not alone. That's what I want you to know today. That, that when you are up against the ropes, when, when evil has its claws in you, when, when there are those places in your life that are worn and, and it just seems like evil has a foothold and it just works in you so quickly, so easily, every, every time, first, I want you to know you're not alone. And then second, here's what I want you to know. The, the second promise of Jesus. That all of those um, rough spots in our life that make perfect handholds for the evil one, Jesus promises that with time, trusting him on this journey, he will begin to refine those things so that they become harder and harder for evil to to get a hold. And in those places in us that are eroded, that are worn down, Jesus promises that he can begin to fill, he can begin to fill what has been taken. He, He can make us whole, he can heal us so that evil no longer has the same kind of access. See, one of the things I love about being a Christian, one of the promises about being a Christian is this, that that the promise of Jesus is not that if I'm good, he'll give me self-control and I'll be able to resist all evil because I'll be so self-controlled. The promise of Jesus is actually this, that if I trust him, he can so fill me with good things that the bad things no longer will have a place in me. And when Jesus comes back, that's what he'll do for you and me. He will fill us so fully with good things that evil will no longer have a place in us. Until that day, my prayer for for myself, my prayer for us, my prayer for you is that God would so fill you with good things that evil would have no place in you or in this body. But the reality is today that evil has had a place in us. So let's take a a moment, let's take a moment and use these words on the screen to prompt a confession.